Hello and welcome. I am Kim Keen, host of the One of a Kind You podcast. I started this podcast to share my journey with my past self, a woman who was struggling with leaving her teaching career and adjusting to stay-at-home mom life, to help other women with their motherhood journeys or their work-life balance journey so they can let go and make themselves a priority without all the sacrificing. So if you are a regular listener to One of a Kind You, welcome. I'm so glad you are tuning in for another episode. And if you are new, Also, welcome to you. I'm so thankful you decided to stop by and check things out. The way that this podcast usually works is that I share a journal entry of mine uh, when I was in the thick of the struggle and I reflect on what I know now as a certified life coach and what I wish I had known then. But today we are in for a special treat. We have Jennifer Moore with us and she is um, the empathic master. And so she has over three decades of experience, um, with practicing as an intuitive healer and spiritual guide, Oh, excuse me, intuitive and healer and spiritual guide. Um, she is a mentor and master trainer of EFT international love EFT. That's tapping for everyone who doesn't know. She's also the author of a self-help book called empathic mastery. And she's the contributor to a three multi-author book, and she also has a podcast. So she is um, a very busy lady, and I'm so thankful that she is joining us this evening on One of a Kind You. So thank you, Jennifer, for joining us. Um, did I miss anything? You didn't. Uh, well, you you covered all the important things. And Kim, thank you so much for having me here. I'm so yes. excited to be having this conversation with you. Yes, I am as well. And so before we hit record, um, we decided that there Jennifer is going to be on one of a kind you two times tonight and then another time because we have so much to talk about and we really haven't really decided which topic we're talking about first. We're just going to let things go naturally and see what happens. So um, the thing that intrigued me, though, about Jennifer and her work is that she helps um, women who are empaths and moms as well. Um, So how did you start working with empaths? So I started working with empaths because I am an empath and it was a journey for me because, and, and before we go into how I started working with empaths, let's just let, let's just make sure we're all in the same playing field and define the word. Yes. So, yeah, because, you know, it, as you and I were saying before we jumped onto the recording, it's becoming a real buzzword. It's Mm -hmm. gotten really trendy. Everybody and their uncle is an empath. Now everybody and their uncle is highly sensitive now. Um, And so I just want to define it because the thing is empath is not, is not a, it's not a diagnosis. It is not a psychological term. It actually mm-hmm. comes out of the science fiction world. And what it and and so different people are going to take it and run with it in slightly different ways. But my personal definition of empath is that an empath is a person who like a psychic, a medium, an intuitive, a channel, somebody with extrasensory perception is open to receiving more information than somebody, than sort of your average bear. Mm -hmm. The thing about an empath is that the empath is picking up on the thoughts, the feelings, the energy, and the sensations from the world around them. Often they are absorbing them, but unlike any of these other kind of qualities, the empath processes the information as if it's their own. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that it becomes very confusing for the empath, because a lot of times we will be feeling perfectly fine 
one minute. And then the next minute we are completely sideways and going, what just happened? Yeah. But living in a culture that tends to downplay emotions, that tends to suppress anything traumatic or difficult, and also has a tendency to tell highly sensitive people and especially empaths, you're overreacting, Mm -hmm. taking it too personally, you're being too sensitive, just get over it. The challenge is that many of us, from the time we are very small children, start self-censoring, start thinking there's something wrong with us, start thinking that we are broken and start thinking that if we can only fix ourselves, then the issue is not, you know, then we're not going to have to deal with the issue. Mm -hmm. The problem with this is that if the real issue is that we're picking up other people's stuff, no amount of inner working is going to make that sadness go away Mm -hmm. because we need to recognize that it's not even ours in the first place. So I kind of just not only define things, but just kind of shared a bit of my own story here in that I was a highly sensitive child picking up on all of the thoughts, feelings, energy, sensations that were going on in the world around me. But as an empathic child, I was feeling it as if it was my own. Mm -hmm. And I, and, and I was also being told that I was too sensitive. I was overreacting that I had an overactive imagination and that I just needed to develop a tougher skin and just kind of stop worrying about it. Mm -hmm. And so for me, the journey was that at first I basically like just thought there was something wrong with me and that I just, you know, if I could only toughen up, if I could only just sort of like be like the other kids, be normal. And that didn't work. And so I found that I found relief in two things. Primarily, I found relief in food, especially in sugar, and I found relief in books. And so I started reading a lot. And I also started um, like eating chocolate, and trying to find relief in the ways that I could. But books certainly can be a good escape mechanism, but you can't be reading 24 seven. And unfortunately, chocolate, while I, I still do eat chocolate to this day, but sugar, processed sugar in particular, is really lethal for my mental and emotional and physical health. Mm -hmm. And so it, it wasn't really working so well. So basically, my story is that I tried things that really, really, really didn't work. Mm -hmm. And as a result of trying things that really, really didn't work, I found myself really getting to the point where I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I was just really like, I was, I was I had a raging eating disorder. I was, you know, in one bad, (laughs) emotionally unavailable relationship after another And I didn't really know what was going on. And that sort of was the thing that kind of led me to start the journey of recovery. And so my journey was an incremental journey of first coming to understand that I was an empath and recognizing that because I was an empath, in order to actually feel better, I had to be able to identify when I was absorbing and picking up other people's stuff. Mm -hmm. And from that, I started to learn all about boundaries. I started to learn all about energetic protection and protecting myself physically as, you know, like, and my, like, you know, having a stronger, more robust aura, having stronger and more robust filters and shields. 
but also strategically, like something as simple as I'm not going to respond to the drama queen's text message at 1130 at night. Yes. You know, and so for me, my, my protection and my sort of development about boundaries was both energetic and sort of psychic, but also very strategic in terms of like, there's things that I can do and things that I don't want to do. And in my experience, you know, the journey is not like it, as, as my friend Britt will say, it's a process, not a pill. Yes. <laughs> and you know, this has been a journey. It is not something where one day I was miserable and the next day somebody came along and said, this is what you are. And they turned on a light switch and everything was completely fine for me. Mm-hmm. It was much more of a, I started first, I kind of started to identify as an empath and understand what the ramifications of that are. Then I started to understand like what I needed to do to address it. And that I literally spent like, years and years and years, like peeling away the layers of the onion and understanding the depth of it. And over time, what happened was as I started to work, because I, I personally became a healer and became an intuitive and did all of the work that I do, because it feels so it felt so good to me to have relief Mm-hmm. that I was motivated to share that with other people. I wanted, I wanted that for other people too. And part of it is that as an empath, we feel better when other people feel better. Yeah. And so if I'm around people who are really suffering and I'm not doing my own personal work, which is a whole other piece of this, mm-hmm. then I'm going to be picking it up and I'm going to feel really, really uncomfortable with that distress And so it's very natural to want to rush in to rescue, to want to rush in to find solutions and to help. But it's also, as I did my work, I started to find that I wanted to share the relief with other people. And so the journey, and so as I was working with people and people were coming to me and doing, and I was, I spent actually interestingly, 20 years doing tattooing as a healing art with people, but people oh, came I love it. Yeah. It was very amazing chapter of my, or, or volume of my life. It was more than a chapter. Yeah. It was definitely a book, but many of the people that were coming to me, I was having these conversations with them and they were talking about their anxiety. They were talking about their, their, their distress. They were talking about all the things they were struggling with and consistently again and again and again, they were really sensitive. They were really intuitive. They were really empathic. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I realized, oh my God, everybody I'm working with, all of these people that are showing up are all empaths. And the issue that's going on for them is that they are absorbing and taking on all of the stress that is coming from the world around them. And so probably like a good, at this point, almost a decade ago, I started maybe a little bit less than a decade ago, but I started thinking about the idea of um, writing a book that was basically the working title was originally the care and feeding of your psychic self living in a muggle world. Mm-hmm. And at the time I didn't necessarily, like, I still hadn't quite put the pieces together about the difference between being a psychic and being an empath. Okay. 
And so I was, but I could see that it was like, some of us are so open. It really can be debilitating. Mm -hmm. And that's when, and so, but once I kind of went, whoa, wait a second, they're all empaths. That's when like, I don't know, like the world became my oyster. Like that's when so many more things started to open up. And I fairly soon after that revelation kind of got the download and it really came in like fully formed about the five-step system of empathic mastery. And what that is, is very short, very short explanation is the first step is recognize. We can't protect ourselves until we recognize what we're, that we're picking stuff up and recognize in my experience, the more work I do with it, the more I understand the, the, the nuances of it. It starts with we just have to recognize ourselves as an empath. Mm-hmm. Next, we have to recognize that we're out of sorts. Mm-hmm. After that, we start to ask ourselves the question and recognize, is this mine? And then from that question of, is this mine? Then we start dialing in and recognizing what's mine, what's not mine. And once we have those kinds of answers, then we can go to the next step, which is release the stuff that is no longer serving us and the distress that we've been carrying around from outside of us. After that, we can start really working on the protect and rebuilding our filters and shields or establishing them for the first time, Mm -hmm. as well as really working on those boundaries and then connect because the universe abhors a vacuum. We can, by making a connection to something greater than ourselves and connecting to positivity and love, we are much less vulnerable to picking up all the negativity and the toxic Mm -hmm. energy that's in the world around us. And finally, the last step of empathic mastery is act, which has to do with how do we live our lives in a new way that allows us to be healthy, to allows us to be empowered, that allows us to be responsible instead of just debilitated by being super, super sensitive. So long, long answer there. Yeah, but no, it's all so good. And as you're sharing your answer, I was like, okay, it made me think, okay, well, how did you discover that you were an empath? Because one thing I shared with you before we hit record is that I am an empath, but years ago, the journal entries that I shared when I was in the thick of the struggle going to therapy, the therapist said, oh, you're codependent. And she wanted to medicate me for anxiety that was related to codependency. However, Um, The other suggestions that she had were, oh, spray yourself an invisible cooking spray so the codependency just slides right off or carry invisible scissors in your pocket so you can cut those codependency strings when they attach. And that just was so mind-blowing to me because A, I had never heard the word codependency before. So I didn't even know what that word was. And when I said that to her and I said, well, what is codependency? And she was like, well, it's basically when you take on other people's emotions Ding, ding, ding. So it was like, so then I read codependency books, Melody Beattie. She's like the codependency uh, guru. I read all of her books, did her workbooks. And then it was like this label. And we talked about labels too, like, well, I'm codependent. I'm codependent. And I couldn't get past that, not realizing that I actually was not codependent, but that I am an empath. So did you have a similar situation in your discovery that you were in fact an empath? 
I was actually really lucky in that I had, so I tried a number of different therapists and had, did not have fantastic luck with some of the early ones, you know, the, the very dry sort of cerebral, like, so tell me about your childhood kind of people. (laughs) But I ended up with, you know, when I was in my mid twenties, I ended up with a therapist who happened to be really psychic and really intuitive. And so it was her that was the actual first person who started to help me put two and two together and recognize that, you know, probably like eight times out of 10, I would come into her office in a state of distress mm-hmm. and we'd start unpacking it and, and, and talking about it. And she was the one who helped me put things together and recognize that most of the time my distress was correlating directly with having had a conversation with somebody, being around somebody who was struggling, dealing with or be like being in the presence of somebody else's experience. Mm -hmm. And she's the one who started to be like, you see, you see this. And, and, and then I started having this experience of being able to go, oh my God, this is not mine. This is not mine. Uh I was also really lucky in that I knew about empaths really early. Like I'd watched like the classic original Star Trek episode, The Empath. And so I knew what an empath was from that. But like I was probably seven, almost 18 years old when I had this conversation with this other empath who was like, and it was a male, but he was like, Uh you're an empath, I'm an empath. And I didn't even understand what necessarily, I didn't fully understand it, except that I understood that he was a mirror and I was a mirror. And the two of us were like a hall of mirrors reflecting off of each other. But because we were like the only two people in the space, it was kind of like, we were just sort of like, it it was, it was just this ever expanding thing, Uh but we weren't necessarily neither of us was was feeding each other emotion because Mm -hmm. we were both in the state of being the reflectors and I didn't fully understand it yet but I knew what he said to me was true I knew it and so by the time and so you know fast forward like seven to 10 years later, I'm working with this amazing therapist who's starting to help me unpack this And I'm recognizing that I am taking it like I'm beginning to understand like, oh, this is what this means Mm -hmm. in terms of how you're affected. So I was very lucky in that I was much more likely to throw myself under the bus and say that I was being codependent. Uh And it was my therapist who was the one who was kind of like, you know, I'm not convinced that this is what's going on here. It seems like what's happening is you're, you know, like you're just taking on and absorbing the pain. And I was saying to you before we jumped on that when it comes to codependency, I mean, I don't love the term. I don't love the term. It feels really derogatory to me. It also feels to me like it's really sexist because we live in a culture that regards nurturing. Like there's a fine line between nurturing and caring and codependency. Mm -hmm. And so many of the things about how as women we're wired to care for each other and care for children has been kind of labeled as um, unproductive and unhelpful. So I don't love the term codependent because I think it's it's been given a really like it's it's kind of like it's regarded as a pathology. Like there's something wrong Mm -hmm. with you if you're codependent. Yeah. But what I have come to believe 
And, and my understanding of codependent is not just that we feel other people's feelings, but that like my regard of codependent was that somebody who's quote codependent um, feels the, an urgent need to meddle, to rush into rescue, to fix a situation is deeply emotionally distressed when somebody else is going through something stressful, not necessarily because they're feeling that person's feelings, but because it bothers them that that person's experiencing it. And then Mm -hmm. ultimately what the codependent wants to do is control the ever loving F out of the whole situation so that, you know, (laughs) things can be better. And so like, for me, I really was sort of raised on the concept of codependent being a control freak Mm -hmm. and, you know, but also like being sort of like throwing themselves under the bus, being mm-hmm. caught up in people pleasing, being caught up in rescue, just all kinds of stuff. But what I realized is that for empaths, when we are not able to protect ourselves from absorbing the thoughts, the feelings, the energy, and the sensation from the world around us, what I find happens is that it is absolutely natural. We feel better when other people feel better. We feel lousy when people feel lousy and we feel better when other people feel better. Therefore, it does not take a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon to understand that we're going to naturally want to help people and we're going to naturally want to come in and help to find solutions for people because if they're miserable, we're miserable. Mm -hmm. And so for many empaths, before we recognize what we are, we're going to naturally gravitate towards the healing professions, towards the helping professions, towards things that will allow us to feel better by having other people feel better too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so fascinating, especially that you had an experience with another empath. So you were able to basically be a mirror for each other. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall. It was, you know, it was such an interesting experience because I mean, I still vividly remember it. Like he was like, we were sitting in a dorm room and I think my back was against one roommate's bed and his back was against another roommate's bed. And there was like, you know, a bowl of weed between us. (laughs) And, and I just remember like sitting there, I think Pink Floyd was probably playing on the stereo And I remember sitting there with him and him calling it out and acknowledging it. And I just remember like the feeling of sitting in the stillness, like it was like the reverberation of it was so powerful, but there was like, I don't even know, like, I guess like maybe everybody else had gone out of the room. Maybe everybody else was in the bathroom. Like somehow it was just him and me sitting across from each other. And it was like, there was a stillness to it. There was a silence to it. There was a, there was, but there was also a magnitude of it that was just absolutely remarkable. And like I said, I can vividly remember like that, that moment of revelation. I can still see him in front of me and just, and, and that, that awareness. So I don't know what it would look, would have looked like on the other side, except that if another empath was there, then it would have been a triangle of mirrors. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it was almost like it was peaceful. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's such an incredible experience because it's not often that 
you have the opportunity to be in a space like that with another empath. Yeah. 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 So, so the other thing I'm wondering is, you know, how did you, when you realize that you're an empath, how did you start to navigate that? Or how do you help your clients navigate that when they have that realization that they are in fact an empath? So as I was saying before, it is a process, not a pill. Mm -hmm. And the first step is recognizing that we're empaths and owning the identity. And that is a journey. I mean, I have had people where, and because so often we've been gaslit, we've been invalidated, we've been denied, we've been told, oh, you know, you're making too big a deal out of it. My experience is that when people come to work with me, often it's because somebody says, you know, I think this woman can help you. Why don't you go check Jen out? And they Mm -hmm. sort of like, we have a conversation and we start working and I'm like, you know, you're an empath or have, did it ever occur to you that maybe you were an empath? And most people start the conversation with me going, oh, I couldn't possibly be this or, oh no, I'm not that sensitive. I'm not this, I'm not that. Mm -hmm. And as we start working together and especially start working on unpacking, like what's really going on inside, what's going on underneath the hood. What I find happens is that more and more of my clients and my students and my, you know, my mentees, they, they go, oh, oh yeah, Yeah. this, 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 and this. And it's ironic because you and I were talking earlier about the fact that, you know, there are people who are using, like claiming the, the name empath or claiming the term, you know, highly sensitive person who aren't that. Right. And what's funny is that most of the empaths I know are not claiming that title. So it's almost like, I, I sit with them for a while and I'm like, you know, this is what this does. And some of the ways that I kind of recognize another person as an empath is often what I will find is they will be coming to me because they have been dealing with unreconciled, like chronic um, emotional distress and unreconciled, even health issues mm-hmm. where they've, where they've done a whole bunch of other work, but somehow this stuff is not, is just not quite shifting. Yeah. And the more we start talking, the more it becomes clear that their distress directly correlates with stuff going on with other people. So in my experience, like the first step is just, the first step is really just being able to find our own default because as an empath, knowing what we're feeling is not necessarily as easy as it is for somebody who's not as porous. Mm-hmm. So my, one of my favorite tools and one of my favorite first things that I really like to do is I just, if I notice I'm feeling out of sorts, I will put my hands over my heart and I will breathe into my heart. And then I will ask myself the question, is this mine? And what I find is just most of the time, the answer will be something like, yes, and, or there's some of it is yours, but a lot of it is not. And then from that question, I then ask the next question, which is what's mine, what's not mine. Mm -hmm. Because after I've asked that question, then I can start basically letting go. And you on your form, you'd ask like, what tip would you like to share? Yes. And what I would say is that for me, giving myself permission to not be responsible for other people's pain, suffering, and drama 
is one of the most important steps towards empathic mastery Mm -hmm. and also towards just feeling okay. Yeah. And, you know, and with that, that I give myself permission to let this go. And so, so I, I also really live by the saying, the Polish saying, not my circus, not my monkeys. (laughs) And that for me is really, really, really helpful. Like another one that I live by is your poor planning does not constitute my emergency because as an empath, when somebody is experiencing a great deal of urgency, mm-hmm. or if somebody, and especially if you've got somebody who's very willful, we'll feel that urgency mm-hmm. and we'll feel their will. We'll feel the part of them that wants to control, like wants what they want. And it's very easy to get sucked into trying to fulfill their desires and to fulfill their, their will. Yeah. And so I really love to live by the not my circus, not my monkeys. And I love it. I love it. Your poor planning does not constitute my emergency. Like, I'm sorry that you just came up with the fact that you now need to come up with this thing three days in it. Like, you know, you need to find a caterer three days from the party you're throwing like, yeah. oh, well, sucks to be you. But I, you know, and, but the thing is without that permission to let it go without that, giving myself permission to be like, this is not my problem. And it's okay for me to let this go. It's very easy to take it on. So when my hand is on my heart and I'm asking these questions of what's mine, what's not mine. Once I start understanding what is not mine, what is somebody else's, I will do this thing with my hands where from my heart, I will take my hands off my heart and I will basically just breathe in. So my hands are still on my heart as I'm breathing in. And then as I, I, as I exhale, I move my hands out and I exhale and I say, I, you know, I release what no longer serves me. I send this back to where it belongs. I'm not sending it back to those, you know, I'm not returning to sender necessarily, but what I'm doing is I'm sent, you know, I send this back to where it belongs. I send back what no longer serves me. And I find that even that sort of magical, like you were talking about the magic scissors and, yeah. you know, the magical, the magical cooking spray. I find that gesture of my hands are on my heart as I recognize what's going on. I inhale and then I release it and, ex- and you know, extend my hands as I exhale. And I just, I'm sending this back. I'm sending this back to where it belongs. Not my circus, not my monkeys, you know, not my problem. Yeah. Not my job. Yes. And I think that those two things go for life in general, whether you're an empath or a highly sensitive person or just a a person in general. Exactly. So often we take on other people's things, um, even when we're not empathic or highly sensitive. Um, But the thing that I love, I love the breathing in your heart technique. I use that with my clients as well to deal with anxiety and coming back to the present. But I think that where, where that strategy differs than the, oh, use the invisible scissors or use the cooking spray is, and it's something that you had, it's like recognizing it. So at that point, I wasn't able to recognize in Mm -mm. the moment I'm having an empathic moment. Let me get the, let me get the tools it just felt so chaotic and overwhelming because I was taking on things that weren't mine. And then it was negatively impacting me. But when you actually take the time to put your hands on your heart, it actually connects you with yourself and you can center yourself in that moment more so than using a visualization technique, like the scissors or the cooking spray, because there's really no sense of self 
there's no connection there with sense of self. With you're not thoughts. in your baseline yet. Yes. If you're if you're just doing the cooking spray or the scissors, you're not accessing your truth. Like you are not connecting to you. And what I think, you know, for us as empaths, being able to feel our own feelings and recognize what are we actually mm-hmm. feeling is such an incredibly important part of it. And cooking spray and scissors is not going to allow us to be returned to our center. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's the thing is like, so often empaths are not connect. Like we lose our connection. We're so distracted by everybody else's stuff. We lose our connection to ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Very much so. And I think that in itself is a whole nother issue where it's harder for us to recognize what, what actually is ours and what belongs to someone else or something else. And so it's super important that we take the time to connect with ourselves. So, um, I'll ask you for one more tip aside from breathing in your heart, what is a way that you have your clients really connect with themselves so that they can be, have that awareness and that recognition of when they're, when they're tapping into their empathic self. You've just said the word tapping. (laughs) Yeah. You just led right to it. Um, I really, really, really love using EFT emotional freedom techniques and, and, you know, in a way that allows us to access what's really going on. And I find, and for, you know, if very short answer, if you've never heard of tapping or EFT is that it's kind of like a form of mental, emotional acupuncture without the needles. And, but what I love to do is when I'm, when I'm in, you know, when I, or a client is in a state of like, kind of like dysregulation and confusion and kind of empathic overwhelm, what I really like to do is tune into where is it in the body? Where am I carrying this distress? What's going on with my body? And when I can identify where I'm feeling something, which usually we can find it in the body. If I can't find it in the body, I might even just start by tapping on, even though I don't even know what I'm feeling and then working with that. But a lot of times there's some sensation in the body. And so what I love to do is I love to just start by tapping on using EFT and just acknowledging, even though I feel this weird plugged into an electric socket, kind of golden prickly sensation in my solar plexus. I'm open to the possibility that I can understand this more. And so just, and then using the classic, like a reminder phrase of this weird prickly sensation, you know, and just moving through all the points, what I find is that just by moving through the action of tapping and using EFT, I will discover I will get answers. I will get clarity. I will understand what's making me tick. I'll start to see what's really going on under the hood. Maybe I'll have a memory or a thought or an idea come up or suddenly I'm like, oh, like I cannot count the number of times that especially like working with my mentees and doing like tapping groups with them where like everybody, like people will come in in this state of kind of like overwhelm and distress and we'll tap a little bit. And it's like, something like nine times out of 10, they're like, Oh my God, that was my mother. Or, Oh my God, that was my husband. Or, Oh my God, that was my kid. Or, Oh, that was my boss. Or, or this is not about me. Like, or this is about my spouse. And it's just really striking how just a little bit of tapping on what we know will reveal more to us about what's really going on. 
Yes, you took the words right out of my mouth because I was going to say when I've tapped and I don't tap as often as I I should and I am using the word should um, because it's such a powerful way to connect with yourself. And so when I really think like, oh, this is a time where I need to tap. So many times I'll get an insight, like just an idea will pop into my head, almost like, you know, a download and I'm like, oh my gosh. And so it happens so frequently, like literally nine times out of 10, why don't I not tap more often? But it is such an incredible technique because it really has such a calming effect on your body because it is like the acupuncture without the needles because the needle part of acupuncture freaks me out. Um, so I'm like, if I can get that same result without the needles, yes, sign me up. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And the beautiful thing is unlike acupuncture, you don't have to go to, you know, this is a tool that you can learn to use for yourself for self-soothing. It's really effective. I'll just, I want to say that in my experience, I think we often will not tap because we make it too complicated for ourselves. And so like, I mean, like there is actually something that I, I was talking with my mentor the other day about where I'm like, Oh God, I got to tap on this memory, Mm -hmm. like really big thing where I'm like, like I I'm like grasping, like the magnitude of like this event that happened like 20, like 30 plus years ago now. And I'm, and, and I've been hesitating. I've been resisting tapping on it because I don't want to like, I'm like, Oh, it's going to be so much work. And it's like, what if you just did a round of tapping on the thing and then see where it goes from there. And so I think like, I, I have a friend, my friend, Terry Ann Hyman wrote a book called the confessions of a shower tapper. And the whole idea is like, it's just like, get into the shower, just tap on the top of your, like, just tap as you're standing on the shower, do one or two rounds. It's like, it doesn't have to be super hard. We can make it, we can make it easier for ourselves. Yes. And I think I love it. So I'm going to look up the book because I love books. Just like, I'm like, Ooh, give me a book. Yes, please. And to the point where my husband's like, if you get another book, you're literally going to crash the weight of the house in like with all the books. So not that he has room to talk because he also has a lot of books. So, but I do, I love a book. So I'm like, Oh, another tapping book. Yes, please. So, um, this has been such an interesting conversation. I've loved every second of it. I can't wait for our part two when we talk empath moms and highly sensitive kids. The one question I have before we wrap up though, is how do you define highly sensitive person versus empath? Okay. This is so I'm just going to preface this by saying the opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gives them take what you like and leave the rest. My sense of it is that a highly sensitive person is sensitive to their environment, sensitive to the behaviors and the energy of the world around them, but may or may not be feeling the emotional, mental, like they may not have the psychic ability. They may not okay. have that, that tele, you know, like, like they may not have the paranormal extrasensory perception side of it. That yeah. from my perception, an HSP is somebody who is, has sensory processing issues, who is picking up on, who is very sensitive to the world around them and often very sensitive to emotional cues. Mm-hmm. What I see is the distinction and the difference is that what I would consider a true empath is that not only is the empath often 
NHSP in the sense that we are sensitive to the environment, we're sensitive to, you know, noise, light, sound, texture, yada, yada. Like there's, there's a definitely an intersection and many, many empaths, I think are also HSPs. But what I notice or what I would say is that empaths have this extrasensory perception, this extrasensory capacity to not only be picking up on all of the, the, um, obvious and not so and and not so obvious like the subtle cues from the world around us and feeling that but we mm-hmm. also can pick up on stuff like an empath can be picking up on the war in Ukraine an mm-hmm. empath can be sensing the distress that is coming a couple weeks down the line mm-hmm. an empath can be feeling the anxiety that is like there where there's no there's no cue that's showing us that this is happening, but we're just, we are, we have the sort of this paranormal ability to sense things. And, you know, I will say though, that I think that with the onset of the pandemic and the dumpster fire that we've been living through for the last three years, that many, many people's protective filters and shields and capacity to compartmentalize and capacity to stuff this stuff down Mm -hmm. has been wearing thin and more and more people are awakening to the fact Mm -hmm. that they are empaths and more and more people are no longer able to like turn the volume down enough to not pick it up because the intensity has increased so substantially in the last three years that many, 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 many more people are now, I, I think, identifying as empaths, but also being affected mm-hmm. in these ways as an empath. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, 100%. Um, so stay tuned, ladies. Episode two will be coming because the next episode is going to be empath moms and highly sensitive kids. Because with like Jennifer said, the dumpster fire of the past three years and more people awakening to it. Uh, we need to know as moms, how to help our, how to help ourselves navigate parenting, highly sensitive little people, but also helping them to be able to navigate it so that they can then move through the world with more ease and less frustration. So if you found this episode helpful, please feel free to share it with a friend and if you would be so kind to leave a review, I take the time to review all of the reviews myself so that I can continue to ensure that this podcast is a place of support and guidance and really a one-stop shop resource for you. Um, because let's face it, ladies, we have got to stick together. So thank you, Jennifer, so much for coming on. And I can't wait to chat again. Oh, Kim, thank you so much for having me. This has really been such a delicious conversation. Yes, I can't wait for more. So thank you, Jennifer. Awesome. See you ladies next week.